G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Please join with me in prayer as we come to 2 Timothy 4. That's the passage to keep in front of you, 2 Timothy chapter 4, that last chapter. Our great God in heaven, uh, we come before you as mere people, before the throne room of God. Thank you that in Christ we can do that. What a privilege to call you our heavenly Father, to come before you that we might plead with you to open our hearts and our minds, uh, even our lives more broadly, to receive your word. That's what we ask, Father, and that's what we do. Father, be at work amongst us individually, for we have much to learn, and together, because we, as a whole community of your people, want to grow, uh, to bring glory to Jesus uh, in the way that we live and act and think and speak with one another. We pray that you'd be at work to that very end this morning, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. They say that there are two kinds of people in the world, people who like to divide the world into two kinds of people, and the rest. And no, uh, no prizes for guessing which of those buckets I belong in. Uh, but I wonder if you'd just indulge me for a moment in uh, a little bit of self-categorisation. If, if I could invite you, let me put it that way, to put yourself in one of two buckets. Um, this week, we come to the last chapter of, I think, the last words that history records for us of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, one of the biggest characters who has shaped world history and we come to some of his last words, his final parting words to a beloved friend, to a good mate, uh, to a trusted companion, Timothy, the pastor of the church uh, there in Ephesus on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, uh, a man who had journeyed for years with Paul, in the path of gospel ministry and who in all likelihood would stand as one of the greats into the next generation as Paul was dead and gone. I find these words pretty stirring. I can only imagine that Timothy found them very stirring indeed and I guess I'd like to ask you, in these two verses, I'm just going to read the first two verses for us to begin with, in these two verses, which half, which theme of the two themes there do you find most compelling, most moving, most stirring? Which side of the coin uh, do you find most powerful in just these couple of verses? I'll read them to you now from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, on the one hand, I give you this charge, on the other. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Um, today, our, our chapter is really an exercise in holding these two things together, know Christ and make him known. Know Christ on the one hand and make him known. Do you see where I'm getting that from in, the, in those opening verses? The in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, know Christ, Timothy. Know him 
Have him in your mind's eye, Timothy. What you know to be true, the Christ that you know personally in the gospel, who you have become convinced of all these years. Let me lay this before you one more time, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing in his kingdom. Know Christ on the one hand. And on the other, preach the word, won't you? Make him known. You proclaim Christ. You get out there and you make him known. Tell the world, Timothy, don't put a lid on it. Preach the word. Which one stirs you the most? Which one kind of speaks to you the most? Which one kind of, you know, for better or worse, kind of, you know, moves you? Uh, Perhaps, my uh, my hunch is, perhaps it depends very much on the the season of life that you're in at the moment. Because if you're sailing along pretty well, if things are going, if you're in a happy season of life at the present time, then you probably hear the, uh, the call to preach the word the more powerfully. Because things are going fairly well and so you kind of feel that for better or worse, maybe for, for guilt or for excitement, I don't know, it sort of depends on, on many factors, doesn't it? Uh, it but the burden, to, the, the call to preach the word, proclaim Christ. And then perhaps your mind goes back to a few weeks ago, do you remember chapter 2, multiply gritty gospel spokespersons, ah yes, that's what we need to be about, that's what we've got to be about together here as a church, it's not just about pastors up the front, but as whole churches using our gifts together to see the gospel go to the next generation, that it might go then to the generation beyond, do you see? Preach the word. But what about when the pressure comes on? What about when you're not sailing along quite so smoothly in life? And perhaps that's you at the moment. And we've heard about that as well from 2 Timothy, haven't we? What about chapter 3, when Christian leaders seriously let you down? Well, then you want to be reminded of the Christ that you know. It's in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus that we live and breathe and pursue His mission in the world. He's got us, He's there. It's in his context. What about when Christian leaders seriously let you down? What about when you you couldn't even believe that they'd stooped so low? Do you remember from chapter 3? What probably sticks out to you then is this foundation for life and ministry. We are, we live in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. Here's what I'm hoping to do today. 2 Timothy 4 unpacks a pattern of ministry for Timothy where knowing Christ empowers, equips him to make Christ known. Knowing Christ empowers him, equips him to make Christ known in the world. Healthy missional churches will neither lose sight of Jesus in all of their zeal to get out there in the world nor will they lose their steel for the mission and retreat into a a, a holy huddle, knowing Christ but never telling anyone else about Him. Know Christ and make Him known. I've got three points. Let me tell you what they are up front so you can track where we're up to and you know you've sort of got something to to hang uh, things on as we go through. Firstly, know Christ and make Him known because He's real. He's, He's not a myth. Secondly, know Christ and make Him known because He has our heart and not just our heads. And lastly, know Christ and make him known, because he has got us every step of the way. Every step of the way. So let's begin. If we're to be a healthy missional church here in Howrah in 2015, if we're to carry on the legacy 
that Paul handed on to Timothy and that Timothy handed on to those elders and leaders in Ephesus and that they presumably handed on to the people around about them as they multiplied the ministry of the gospel and it just spread further and further across the Mediterranean and across the known world at the time and now across the globe to 2015 here in Howrah, if we're to be a healthy church carrying on that legacy then first of all, know Christ and make him known. Why? Because he's real. Because he's real. Let's read uh, those first uh, five verses uh, there. That is to say that the reality of Jesus, the reality of Jesus empowers this link between healthy faith and healthy evangelism. Take a look from uh, chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. I just want to pick up on one thing in there. I've got to confess, I find it kind of weird when people these days, uh, when folks these days, uh, try to make out that there is a credible case to be made against the historical Jesus. You see it sometimes, don't you, on on the telly or in books, you see it all over social media, it's a bit of a commonplace there. When folks try to make the case that there is uh, uh, some doubt about the historical Jesus, it's like, compared to these verses, it's like the shoe has somehow shifted to the other foot, hasn't it? Compared to what Timothy was grappling with back then... Uh, Back with Timothy, what is the danger there in verse 4, verses 3 and 4? They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, these dodgy myths. People were building their lives on myths instead of Jesus. They're turning away from Jesus, from reality, from reliability and turning instead aside to these myths. What, what What are the kind of myths? What's their character at least? Uh, Well, you can look across the New Testament, George Knight's done the work for us there, myths, he says, this word, myths, is used here as elsewhere in the New Testament to signify what is not true, not historical and lacks reality. These myths that people are turning to are things that are not true, not historical and lack reality. And perhaps you're scratching your head like me and kind of thinking, why would anyone love stuff that is false, demonstrably false, that is non-historical, that lacks a basis in history or reality, the world as we know it? Why would be? Because better a tickled ear than a surgeon's incision sometimes. That's it, isn't it? Do you see what I mean? From verse 3, halfway through there, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside 
to myths. And so, Timothy, you preach the word. In the presence of Jesus, you preach the word. Who, by the way, uh, uh, Jesus, who, by the way, is no myth. He is no fairy tale. He isn't some pleasant story that you'll just want to keep hearing over and over because hearing it will insulate you against the difficult things in life and the world. No, Jesus is real and that means he won't tickle your fancy, actually. I wonder if you've grappled with that kind of an angle on the gospel before. That Jesus is actually a truth that will not tickle your fancy sometimes. He won't mesh with your desires. He might well, how did verse 2 put it, correct and rebuke some of the things that we carry on with in life. And so, in season and out of season, Timothy, confront the lies with truth. Why? Because he's real. Would you change church? Asks one pastor quite pointedly on these verses. Would you change church if the Bible teaching was too close to home or told you things that you didn't want to hear? Sadly, that is how it happens sometimes, isn't it? Perhaps many of us have felt that actually at one time or another. Things that are said from the front and it's, it's not that they're not from the Bible or, or, or things that are read out from the front or things that we come across in the Bible study on Wednesday night or on Thursday night or whatever it is and they rile us, they wind us up. It's not that we make a truth claim against them, but they just get too uncomfortable. They don't suit our desires, if you see what I mean. That's a danger for all of us, I imagine, with hearts like ours. Let this keep us speaking of Jesus, that the Jesus we know is real, that the Jesus we know is real and we want to make known the real Jesus. Secondly now, know Christ and make him known. Yeah, absolutely, because he's real, okay, in the face of myths. But secondly now, know Christ and make him known because he has our heart. He has our heart. Um, I'm reminded here of um, a particular scene from a film and I know it's dangerous whenever you pick a scene from a film, who's seen it, you know, who's actually kind of, it's an old one, I hope you might have seen it, Dead Poets Society, is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's now getting too old, isn't it, the chances are, uh, that old, I can't even remember that, seize the day, boys, do you remember that scene? That's not the one I'm talking about, I'm talking about the other memorable scene uh, from the, it was, so, it's an 80s film, Rowan Williams, it's his, uh, he's playing a character called Mr Keating and it's his last day as a teacher in this stuffy old boys' school. Uh, he'd been the teacher of uh, literature or English or both, I can't exactly remember, and in fact he'd got the sack. Now, as I remember it, the headmaster came into the classroom and rather dramatically demanded that Williams, that Mr Keating, leave right there and then, that you're done, leave Mr Keating, was, the, uh, was the, his cry. And so he got his marching orders there in the midst of the whole class. All the boys were there. Leave, Mr Keating, you're done, you're out. And now his only crime, and here's the tragedy, was that Mr Keating had the audacity... Uh, to challenge the monotony of just rote learning English poetry and English verse. 
Uh, he had the audacity to challenge that as the, uh, the way to teach children uh, literature because he believed that it was actually possible for people to fall in love with literature, for people to fall in love with poetry. And, uh, and so he, he tried to um, win their hearts with a view to knowing that if you win the hearts of someone, then it'll be full in their heads. You won't need to write, they won't, you won't need to teach them uh, to wrote, learn the poems because they'll fill their own heads with them once the poems have got their heart. They'll soon have the literature in their heads once it's in their hearts. Uh, and the boys loved it and the boys loved him as a result. Do you remember it? And so as Mr Keating is marched out of the classroom on that fateful day in that tearful scene, and as the boys' worlds kind of crumble in around them and the headmaster is there and he's threatening expulsion to any laddish upstarts who make any sound as Mr Keating's leaving the room, who challenge his authority, a student gets up on his desk and quoting one of the poems that Mr Keating had taught them to fall in love with, he uh, quotes Walt Whitman's Ode to Abe Lincoln stands up on his desk, faces Mr Keating, oh, captain, my captain. Do you remember the scene? And the headmaster's bellowing at him. Down, boy! Oh, captain, my captain. And then another student. And then another student. Why? Why would you stand up on a desk with the very real risk of expulsion from this stuffy old school and its headmaster? Oh, captain, my captain. Why? Because the poems had their heart. And because he had their heart. So with that in mind, let's read from verse 5 of 2 Timothy. From verse 5, But you, Paul says to Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Who have longed? The word there, longed, it's actually the word loved, which would make for an awkward translation, who have loved his appearing. No, no, it's a good translation, who have longed for his appearing. But the idea is, in other words, every Christian whose heart is wrapped up in the appearance, in the return of Jesus, every Christian whose heart is wrapped up with the return of Jesus, you need never doubt that you will have a standing before God, a righteousness before God, this crown of righteousness, a standing before God on that day that will be worth the race. That will be absolutely worth the struggle. That will be worth having kept the faith for. You need have no doubt, Christian. And in some ways, you know, it's not a point that you can labour, is it? You can't argue, Paul can't argue, I can't argue our hearts around to long for Jesus. Then I just look at the example of Paul and I think, gosh, that is... You look at verse 6. What we have here is for Paul that the very idea that his ministry was to live and die in the presence of Jesus, that won him over to to this image of verse 6, did you catch it there, being poured out like a drink offering. 
somehow with the perspective of Jesus' return, that's okay with him. It's okay if I'm poured out, sloshed over the altar, if that's what my life comes to before Jesus. Not every drop savoured, not every ounce of my life weighed carefully. No, my life is poured out for the sake of Jesus. And it might look for all the world like the biggest waste. What a waste of a life. Spending your life in church or in trying to uh, uh, proclaim Christ. But I'm okay with that, says Paul. I'm okay with being behind that and spending my free time, my afternoons, my evenings, whatever it happens to be. Because better to be wasted for the Lord than wither away without. I think Calvin, uh, John Calvin from the 16th century, I think he was right to call us out on this verse in a kind of abrupt phrase. He says, Alas for our stupidity, which so dominates us that we never think seriously of Christ's coming when we should be giving it our whole attention. I think he's right. So, we know Christ and we make him known for his real. We know Christ and we make him known because he has our heart. Thirdly, lastly, finally, we know Christ and make him known because he has got us every step of the way. He's got us every step of the way. What makes these uh, next verses kind of difficult, I think, for us to latch on to, verse 9 and following, I'll read them in just a moment, uh, is the names, names, names. It makes it difficult uh, for us to, to, to read, to, to make sense of, to catch up with. It's sort of, it's like Paul's got his phone out of his pocket. Does this sort of strike you in this way? And he's just flicking through his contacts and just going, oh yeah, Demas, and oh yeah, Alexander, and oh yeah, oh yeah, that thing, um, there was Carpus at Troas, and he's got my jacket, and you know what I mean? Like, it's just like he's sort of scrolling through, and it's hard for us to even pronounce the words, let alone keep up with the thread of Paul's thought. Uh, it feels like he's just in, by the way, say good day to all these people, but no, actually, I don't think we're into farewells yet, and this is what I want us to see from verse 9 to verse 18. We're not yet into the farewells of the letter. They come in verse 19 and following, He's not up to that yet. This is still marching orders. This is still about knowing Christ and making him known. And Paul is saying, right to my very end, I'm going to be about that. Uh, And so what is he doing? He's gathering lieutenants. He's giving warnings against the dangers. Uh, And in the end, uh, as we're about to read, he is reassuring Timothy that even with all of these people going every which way, that the Christ that he knows has got him every step of the way. Let's read from verse 9. Do your best, says Paul to Timothy. Paul from a Roman prison, the squalor of a Roman prison, to Timothy across in Ephesus, where Paul is uh, sending Tychicus to kind of take his place. We'll see that in just a moment. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica... Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Incidentally, kids, that region is where what animal gets its name? Dalmatians. Yeah, I don't think that, you know, anyway, look it up on Wikipedia afterwards. That's just where the name comes from. Who was there? Titus, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. 
Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defence, no one came to my support. But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles. Sorry, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Just those last couple of verses there. Which is it? Will Christ bring him through every trial, every evil attack? Or will Jesus take him to his heavenly kingdom? Which is it? Will he survive? Will Paul get out of prison? Will he carry on missionary work? We know that he wanted to go to Spain. Is that what he is looking forward to from Rome to Spain? Or is it curtains and will that cloak that is going to be brought by Timothy from Carpus at Troas make its way to him that he might survive the winter only to go to the gallows in spring, so to speak? That's not Paul's perspective at all, the either or, is it? Here is the last empowering that Paul sets before us. We know a Christ whose kingdom is ultimately heavenly and we know a Christ whose deliverance is ultimately heavenward. I do wonder if I've grasped that sometimes with the things that I'll do for comforts and ease in life, the corners that I'll cut, Uh, the efforts that I'll hold back from. I wonder if you can relate to that. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. It's not either or for Paul. Calvin, of course, he lived in a time like Paul, where preaching Jesus meant putting your body on the line, meant putting your life on the line. And in fact, that's the time that we live in now. If you're a Christian in North Korea, in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Nigeria, the list goes on. But I, I find it kind of shaming in a way. Calvin says, what we should chiefly desire is not the safety of our body, but that we should rise superior over every trial that we may be ready to die a hundred times over rather than think of soiling ourselves by one evil work. What's Paul's confidence? The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Do you see? It's not either or. His kingdom is heavenly and our rescue is heavenward. He knows Christ the Christ who will bring him to his heavenly kingdom. So in conclusion, I just want to ask, do you know Christ? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, do you know Christ? And does knowing Christ impel you to make him known because he is real, 
and because he's got your heart and because you know that he's got you every step of the way, even onward towards heaven. He's got you. How about we pray? Our great God in heaven, the God before whom we live our lives down here, God, this morning we pray for your glory in this world. Too often we've lived and we've planned, we've even prayed like the biggest things in our lives are things that we buy or things that we consume. Father, fill our lives, fill our imaginations, please, with the reality of Jesus. Fill our hearts with his love for us. Fill our confidence with the assurance of salvation. Father, we pray that we'd be a people, that we'd be a church that prizes every single opportunity to speak of Jesus, whether or not it's convenient, whether or not it's easy, whether or not it draws us into fire. And Father, we pray that we'd imitate Paul in one other area as well. Encouragement. For the years are long and the disappointments are many and the struggles, or well, too often we, we carry them alone and we become downhearted, we become worn out because we isolate ourselves. We pray, Father, that we'd speak to one another words of encouragement in the gospel, not empty words but gospel-charged words that draw our hearts and our eyes back to the Jesus that we know and push us on outwards to make him known in the world. Father, may we be that blessing to one another. May that really characterise us as a community of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.